1959, John Murray, a Scottish systematic theologian at Westminster Theological Seminary, published the first volume of his commentary on the Book of Romans, one that John Piper would later call the most beautiful commentary ever written. In the more than 60 years since it first appeared, Murray's commentary has changed the way scores of pastors and teachers read and teach the Bible, helping to draw many readers and congregations into deeper communion with their Savior. Now, Westminster Seminary Press has reprinted John Murray's commentary on Romans in a beautiful new hardcover edition updated with a new introduction by Sinclair Ferguson. I'm your host, John Curry, professor of pastoral theology at Westminster. In this podcast, we'll revisit the classic commentary with some of the pastors and teachers it has influenced the most. Along the way, we'll explore how Paul's letter to the Romans and John Murray's commentary on that letter help us to understand, teach, and preach Romans in the present day. I hope you'll join me as we explore together the Epistle to the Romans. Let me try to move us in a few minutes we have left to talk about uh, the portion of Romans that I think perhaps can be neglected, uh, not just in commentaries, uh, but in preaching Romans, because there's so much to get through to get to Romans chapter 12. And then after Romans chapter 12, we get the implications of life in Christ from all that we've got uh, previously. So uh, let me just ask you the question, the question, what is Murray's distinct contribution here? And if you'd like to talk about, the, we alluded it to in a previous episode, his principles of conduct. So here you have Murray, the systematician, who's doing the exposition of Romans, who gets us to Romans 12, and just some of the pastoral observations and applications he makes are just golden as he moves through the, the last part of the, of the book. What's the significance of the fact that here you have the systematician, the exegete, who is uh, doing such work on the ethics of the Christian life, even to the point where uh, he produces a book called Principles of Conduct. Talk to us about Murray's application. Can I say just a word? Yeah. Um, and this is sort of a macro look, um, but it relates to what Murray's going to say. So when, when you look at the structure of the book of Romans, you've got, um, I think I've counted accurately, you've got um, 314 verses, chapters 1 to 11, 12 imperatives. As we, as we said, beginning in, in chapter mm -hmm. 6. Um, and in chapter 12 alone, you have more than 12 imperatives. So that's a structural thing we need to mm -hmm. recognize that what's happening there is the Spirit of God inspiring the Apostle Paul. You need to understand what union with Christ is, what Christianity is, and then therefore by the mercies of God. It's interesting, couched uh, between the indicatives and the imperatives is doxology. Mm. So what, what I've said to, to our students before is, this is the way you need to think about your studies here. We're giving you a lot of information, and a lot of it has to do with the indicatives. If that doesn't take you to doxology, you're not going to be prepared personally or pastorally for the imperatives mm. in your church. Romans is structured that way. Get the gospel right. Yeah. That better leads you to, oh, mm -hmm. the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, where Paul goes from him, through him, to all glory to God and God alone, therefore. I mean, that's just such a yeah. poignant therefore. After all of this, and Murray says that, it could be, he said, it could be referring to the previous, but he's referring to the whole thing. Yeah. Therefore, by the mercies of God, present mm -hmm. your 
What? Your bodies. Yeah. Those bodies united to Christ. Mm -hmm. And now he gets into the ethics. Here's what he says, Romans 12. Sanctification is a process of revolutionary change in that which is the center of consciousness. This sounds a fundamental note in the biblical ethic. It is the thought of progression and strikes at the stagnation, complacency, pride of achievement, so often characterizing Christians. Mm. That's a pretty bold yeah. statement, but I think he's right on the mark there. That's how he begins to help us think about Romans 12, the biblical ethic. Yeah. Being made new men and women yeah. in Christ Jesus, we are the children of God. And what do children of God want to do yeah. but to please their Father? Yeah. That's part of what the heart of the gospel is, is it not, that we, are, we have a heart change. And so as we were talking earlier about Romans 6 and the decisive breach with the power of sin, much like Scott has just put it in terms of that indicative and doxology to imperative, it seems to me that Romans 12 forward is an incredible gift. Right? It's a gift to the church to say, you are no longer under the power of sin, but you are now under the power of the Spirit. Right. You belong to Christ. And so because you do, let me show you how you live, how you walk, and how you think. And the way Murray unpacks this is reminiscent for me of the first time that I read the larger catechism. Mm -hmm because I was stunned by the depth of analysis and, and reflection on what the law of God has for the Christian. And Murray's commentary in this section of his work is just extraordinary, and it is a reflection of the overflow of Murray's devotion, I think, in terms of calling himself and the rest of us to a life that is commensurate with the very thing that we have been given, Christ himself. Yeah, that's really well put. Mm -hmm. And the way that Romans 12 through 16 can itself be kind of set out and set off from the rest of the epistle as the final movement of the epistle as a whole, mm. it's really fascinating how that's framed. Uh, the opening words of chapter 12, present now your bodies as living sacrifices. <clears throat> this is a reminder to Christians that the world of the cultists is not irrelevant to Christian faith and life. Mm. This is the language, the imagery, the very reality of the cultists, of the sacrificial system. Uh, what does the gospel do? It reaches to the very depths of the why behind all of the what of the Old Covenant cultist order. Um, it's, a, it's a helpful for us to remember uh, that where, whereas we think of the sacrificial order as a bloody one, and in so many respects it was, there's a reality deeper than the bloody reality, and that is all creation is called by virtue of creation to swell up, to rise up in glory of its creator. The notion of offering is fundamentally the liturgical response to our maker, the amen of all things. Mm. It became bloody because of the reality of sin, the cleansing that is necessary, and the life that that exhibits. What do we have in Jesus Christ? In Jesus Christ, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are redeemed in such a way that we are not only counted righteous, but we are, in fact, able to do by grace the very thing we are made to do, glorify and enjoy God, our maker, our creator, and lead creation in our train, as it were, in the upswelling amen to God. 
to present ourselves and with us all things under our uh, provisional and temporary rule under Christ, to Christ, and through him to the Father, as Christ is, is gathering all things to the glory of his Father. Mm -hmm. That's how chapter 12 starts, and what a vision it is for the Christian life and the faith and work of the church. And then the epistle closes with something that I think is beautiful in its own way. Who is that church that is rejoicing at the grace and glory of God in this way and offering itself as sacrifices? Well, chapter 16 is replete with mentioning women by name, starting with Phoebe in verse 1, who Murray agrees with most commentators was probably the letter carrier of, of the epistle to the Romans to the church at Rome, about whom he would have learned from Prissa and Aquila as they returned from Rome to Corinth when he's writing this, and they would, he would have told, they would have told him about, about Phoebe and about all these other women he names by name throughout chapter 16. There is no hesitation, and there must never be hesitation, to recognize the fruitfulness, the industry, the service to Christ and to his church on the part of faithful Christian men, faithful Christian women, and the children who have the Lord's name placed upon them. Uh, at the end of Romans, to see a, a kind of countercultural interest in naming these invaluable Christian women who are servants of Christ and his people in the church at Rome and elsewhere is its own kind of indirect witness to what the gospel does. It enriches the church by way of the church in her union with Christ, where every member is doing his and her part to bring great glory to the Lord. In Christ, the movement, as it were, of all things is returning to the Lord, our maker, in praise and doxology. Mm -hmm. And that's a glorious gospel. Huh. As we're winding up here, uh, uh, let me have two more questions. Uh, and Mark, let me ask you a uh, personal question, and then I want to ask all of us a personal question about the influence of Murray on um, theology and life. Mark, you're writing a commentary on Romans. I am. Give us, give us a picture of, of where Murray's commentary fits in the history of commentaries on Romans. How important is it? How relevant is it? Wh where is it today? Yeah. Um, the history of Romans commentating in the life of the church is an interesting topic itself. Um, while there are many examples, or at least a good number of examples historically of commentaries, it was the 16th century during the time of the Reformation that was, saw a veritable explosion of Romans commentaries. Calvin's first commentary was on Romans, and he revised it uh, two more times uh, throughout the rest of his ministry. 1539 is when he wrote it, and then he revised it in the 1550s on two occasions. Um, Calvin is someone Murray leans on very, very heavily, which was common for Reformed theologians of his era. Calvin was largely the single person in the Reformed tradition that they relied on most. He's a great resource uh, along these lines, of course. Murray's commentary, written in the 1950s and early 60s, this period of uh, Reformed Christianity in this country, um, it's coming out at the same time as, in fact, I think it's around the same year as Hermann Ritterboss's commentary on Romans in Dutch, which I think is still untranslated. Um, Joseph Fitzmaier, the Roman Catholic, wrote his a few years later. Uh, not long before this, we have works by Meyer and C.H. Dodd, which remain enduringly relevant to Roman scholarship. For the, good, for, the, for the better part of 30, 40, 50 years after Murray's work, it was regularly cited, mm. regularly interacted with, regularly recognized as important as a conversation partner for serious work on Romans. 
I will say over the last decade or two, that's not been as much the case. Mm. And one of my great hopes is that reprinting it yeah. is going to bring it right back into the picture of those who are doing serious work on Romans and really appreciate the, mm. the gold that is in his work. I am writing a commentary on Romans. Um, I routinely find myself on the one hand, grateful for how Murray has handled a question, handled a passage, and then almost despairing, well, what am I supposed to do with it now? <laughs> having, having read what Murray did, and I think he just put it so well. Um, there are advances in our understanding of Paul and Romans since John Murray wrote. Um, there are ways that certain readings of his, of disputed passages, um, could be interacted with fruitfully, and he would welcome that, and he did welcome that. Uh, on the whole, it's hard for me to imagine a more consistently and predictably reliable and edifying exposition of Romans. Uh, but I hope by God's grace to, to make some small step in the direction of usefulness and in, in trying. I'm not going to try to update Murray's Romans, um, but I am certainly going to be uh, squatting on his shoulders as I try to see a little bit further on, on this or that point but only with the considerable benefit of what Murray has done for us all. Yeah, what a great summary. And some of the reasons you're mentioning are, I, I'm so excited about the republishing of this. I've told others that this is the commentary on Romans that I want in the shelf for my grandchildren yes. to be able to access. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Maybe we could start, Scott, could we start with you and go this way as we conclude just a short uh, reflection on what's the significance of Murray been for you personally, theologically, in terms of your your pedagogy, uh, what's the significance of John Murray for each of you? Yeah, I, I think for me, um, it was it was principles of conduct that um, that that really showed me. Um, I just remember reading the chapter on truth and what truth is, mm -hmm. and and it showed me. Um, number one, I haven't really thought about this, and I thought I'd thought about this. Number two, mm -hmm. if I'm going to think about this, I need to do it biblically. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and Murray, when, so whenever I read Murray, and then uh, when I was a student here, you know, I had, I had Gaffin, and come to find out Gaffin is dependent on Murray, and so we're reading some of those books, Redemption Accomplished and Applied and others. And um, it just, it, it showed me, um, for the first time, a scholar like Dick Gaffin, but somebody who was both serious about the text and dealing with issues that people in the churches are asking about. So he, he wrote a book on Baptism. What do you think about paedo baptism? Well, try Murray first. What do you think about divorce? Murray's thought about that mm -hmm. deeply. Um, these are these are church issues. Yeah. Uh, every pastor deals with them. So I think R.C. Sproul said one time that principles of conduct was uh, among the top five in his list of books mm -hmm. he'd ever read. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I didn't think anybody's been able to do quite what Murray was able to do in, in wrestling with the things that he did. So this this commentary is. I to, to me it's still at the top. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, it's hard for me to pick which of Murray's writings that I appreciate the most. I still enjoy his essays and the shorter writings and uh, redemption accomplished and applied. The Romans commentary is, like you've said, one I want to uh, only keep but see it last for generations. So I'm really grateful for the republication. I think I'd maybe categorize my, um, my thoughts on Murray's influence primarily, like Scott, channeled first to me through Dick Gaffin. Um, but I would say that my desire is to be like Murray in the sense of being radically non-speculative in my theologizing, yeah. to really seek to be biblically grounded. Murray was a biblically thinking man. Mm. And to have his entire theological endeavors shaped by that commitment, I would, 
I would long for that to be true of me as well. And then the second thing is I think I would want to just say, we've talked about his devotion. But there, you know, I've heard through the years many, many people who have studied under Murray years ago here at Westminster. And as much as they appreciated his scholarship, they were mostly undone by his prayerfulness and by the way in which he approached the throne of grace and the deep love that he had for God and his word. Mm that was the very essence of the man. So he was not a man who, as you put, I think in our first episode, who sat on top of the Bible. He actually clearly sat himself under it, but again, not just as an academic, but one who had been powerfully transformed by union with Christ. Yeah. Good, good sentiments. I can Mark. I can not do better than that, but I'll just take it one step forward even further what these brothers are saying. I, I think in, in John Murray, you see someone who loves the Lord while he's working in his word mm-hmm. and who sees theology and exegesis as a result as acts of worship. Mm-hmm. And I think the gravitas of the man, the old English word carriage comes to mind, the way he must have carried himself, the seriousness of the man and his work. You know, we live in a time where I think, I think that would be a good thing to recover. I think, we, I think we sometimes struggle in our day with a little too much of, of, a, of an airiness and a lightness among ministers and scholars of God's word who teach uh, where we don't really exude any real sense of the, the weightiness of the subject matter and of the God we are speaking of. And there's a place for levity. There's a place for, for laughter, as Murray himself would undoubtedly uh, insist. But there's an overall um, uh, gravitas attaching to how he cautiously, patiently, real great virtues in theology and exegesis, and how he cautiously, patiently approached this holy book and the holy author. So exegesis and theology as matters of worship, which makes a commentary of interest to all Christians, and not just the scholars, not even just the preachers. But if this is expounding God's word, I'm in. Uh, because I love the, the author, and Murray gives us a bit of that. That's great. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you all for participating in this conversation about a great commentary on the great epistle by a great author. And uh, I'm sure you all join me in, in hoping for the speeding of this book into as many hands as possible. And as we said, particularly to preserve it for the next generation. Indeed. Yeah. Thank, you. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.